Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Do you remember September 11th, 2001? Some of you may, some of you may not, but I do. And I remember I was a child, and I remember I didn't quite know what was going on, but I was in grade school, and the teacher wheeled in a TV, and we watched the news, and we'd never done that before. And we saw the horror of what had taken place in New York City on September 11, 2001, and I remember the feeling I had watching it. Because for the first time, I'd watched something not produced by Hollywood, not fabricated in some story, but real. Something real that was devoid of any good. And it was very different from a normal plane crash, although I guess I don't know entirely what I mean by normal plane crash. But you kind of understand what I'm saying, where when a plane crashes, there's some good in the situation. Maybe an engine's gone out, or maybe something's malfunctioned, and the pilot is doing his best. He's wrestling the controls. He's fighting... And maybe he succeeds and he lands the plane in the Hudson River. Or maybe he fails and tragedy ensues, but he's able to crash it into a field or into some place that's deserted and he's able to somehow minimize the death toll. Or maybe he's not, but either way, there's some good there. There is a fighting chance for survival. But when you watched 9-11 happen in real life, it was a situation devoid of any good. The plane was hijacked ran into a building, and killed thousands of innocent people. And that's kind of the feeling I'm entering this subject with. Listen, I've been reading books and listening to sermons and talks from philosophers on hell. And what I've realized is hell is kind of intertwined into humanity. It's intertwined into the general thought of humanity, though I would argue that most of us, including myself, honestly, don't think about hell very much every day. But statistically, it is true that more than three quarters of Americans believe that there is a hell. And I know it's something like less than 5% of them actually believe that they're going to go to hell. Which, of course, I hope is true. And from a Christian point of view, I would say God actually hopes is true as well. The Bible says that God desires that none should perish but that all should come into everlasting life. And thus begins our questioning on hell. As you may expect entering this episode, it will be a multiple-part series. I don't know if it'll be two or three at this point. I'm just starting out, but I know it's going to be more than one. And so let's take our time, but let's be precise, and let's actually get to the meat of the questions. But first I want to ask, why would a loving God send people to hell? And I don't want to spend a ton of time in this question. I feel like a lot of preachers and teachers and, and people have answered this question. And that there's a ton of resources out there. So if you want to do more digging on this question, I encourage you to. And even if you want to argue with me or just have a dialogue with me, I encourage you to do that as well. And then after that question, I want to talk about what hell's actually like. But first, why would a loving God send people to hell? And to jump into this topic, I want to actually start off with a Dostoevsky quote from the Karamazov brothers, in which he writes, It's impossible, I think, for the devils to forget to drag me down to hell with their hooks when I die. Then I wonder, hooks? Where would they get them? What of? Iron hooks? Where do they forge them? Have they a foundry there of some sort? The monks in the monastery probably believe that there's a ceiling in hell, for instance. Now, I'm ready to believe in hell, 
but without a ceiling, it makes it more refined, more Lutheran, that is. And, after all, if there's no ceiling, there can be no hooks. And if there are no hooks, it all breaks down, which is unlikely again, for then there would be none to drag me down to hell. And if they don't drag me down to hell, what justice is there in the world? And maybe you were going to guess this is kind of where I was headed, right? But in order for God to be a God of justice, he must punish sin, which means that there must be a hell. But that's much too shallow a picture for hell. That's a two-dimensional view for a three, if not four-dimensional reality of what hell is. No, you see, what you're thinking of when you think of God judging sin is you're thinking that God's sort of like this moral accountant, that he has a list of rights and wrongs, and on reviewing the list of rights and wrongs, he sees wrong in your life, and therefore says, all right, you have wrong. You need to pay for it for all of eternity, right? It's a little insensitive. And that view isn't entirely wrong, but to say that that's the only view of the criteria that God would send someone to hell is sadly mistaken. So let me explain what I mean by this. Yes, sin deserves death. I do not want to contradict the Bible or what I've been saying in this podcast. Sin must be paid for. And the sins I commit separate me from God, which as we defined a couple episodes ago, separates me from heaven, therefore is hell. But it's much, much deeper than that because we actually have to get back to the reason for why you sin at all, the reason for why I sin at all, and the reason for why God is God in a way. And I'll get back to that in a second. But suffice it to say for now, yes, sin deserves death. Yes, God's a judge. Yes, God knows every sin you and I have ever committed and has a record of it. But the reason for someone going to hell is much more nuanced than that. You see, this goes back to creation. When God made man and woman, when God made humans, God gave us free will. And according to the scriptures, the greatest choice to make in all of human existence is to choose God or not choose God. And so therefore, as you may have deduced by this point in the podcast, then hell is the choice of not God, just as equally, if not more so, than it is a consequence for sin. Because again, sin, as it's defined in the Bible, is choosing not God, is choosing to say, you are not Lord, you are not God, creator, ruler, rule giver over things. I am. What you say is good, I don't say is that good. What you say is bad, I say is good. I'm going to do the bad, I'm going to break your law, and thereby asserting myself as God. And God, since he's all-powerful, has every right to destroy us then and there the moment we commit that first sin, the moment we, for the first time in our lives, say, you're not God, I am. He's all-powerful. But if he were to assert only his power, he would not be all-loving. And so therefore, God allows choice. Much like any chosen relationship, both partners must choose each other in order for the relationship to continue. Because if one chooses and the other chooses to flee the relationship, the relationship must end, otherwise it's abuse. And God is not an abuser of power. And so then, of course, you may say, aha, well, he's clearly not a very good lover either. Because if he really did love us, why doesn't he just write some holy, heavenly banner in the sky for everyone to see, saying, hey, I'm God, follow Jesus, your life depends on it, or you're going to hell. But what you're failing to realize is that too would actually be an abuse of power because he would be displaying his power. Instead, what he needs to do is display his love, not his power. And a love that doesn't cost anything isn't a love. It's a kind gesture. It's an encouraging word. So for God to simply just write up in the sky, hey, I love you, is nothing more than a pleasantry. Love must cost something. Love must cost something grand 
the more grand the love is. And so not to get back into the gospel, but that's what we see on the cross. We see God displaying his love. And in talking about heaven and hell and talking about love, it's probably appropriate at this point to bring up the parable that Jesus gave about the rich man and Lazarus the beggar. Now, I'm going to be talking about this parable over the next couple episodes, so keep this one in the back of your mind. I would encourage you, open up the scripture, read the parable yourself, see what it has to say, because there's really a lot in there. But what's interesting is when the rich man is in hell and he cries up to Lazarus and Abraham, and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth so that his family wouldn't end up in hell as well, Abraham's response is, no, <laughs> he says they, they wouldn't believe if a dead person rose from the grave and said, hey, you don't want to go to hell. Maybe there's some foreshadowing there because I think uh, Jesus was eventually going to be that dead person that rose from the grave. Anyway, Abraham says they have the law and the prophets, right? They have Moses and the prophets. So in other words, this rich man is in hell saying, send a miracle, send a dead man rising from the grave to warn about eternity to my brothers so that they don't have to end up here as well. And Abraham says they already have all they need to know in the scripture. And I submit to you that that's the case with us today. That if God broke open the skies and said, here I am, look, it's me. I'm proving myself to you. I'm giving you irrefutable proof. He would be abusing his power. He would be showing you that his power is stronger than his love, but nothing, according to the Bible, is stronger than the love of God. God is love. And so if heaven begins with one being open and willing to accept that love and start that relationship, hell begins with a closed heart to that love, to the love of God. Now, I'm not saying heaven begins with knowing everything. I'm not saying heaven begins with, I have faith, I have blind faith that Christianity is true. You can have doubts in knowing and loving God. I do. <laughs> to this day, this morning, I woke up, and I had doubts, and I had to do some reading, and I had to research and pray. I think to not have doubts is to have already rejected to a certain degree. But I think it's helpful throughout life, and this is just a little side note on life advice, I think it's helpful throughout life to just constantly ask yourself, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? It doesn't have to be career-wise. It can be a vast number of different things that you can put in that question. But I've noticed that more and more as I continue through life, that in order to get a proper perspective on what's important in life, what matters, what do I want to spend my money on, my time on, who do I want to spend my time with, Sometimes I just like to pause and ask myself that question. What do I want to do with the rest of my life? And it gives me the perspective to kind of know how to better allocate spending my money, time, energy, stuff like that on. And in a similar sense, I think we need to ask ourselves that about eternity. What do you want to do with the rest of eternity? And whatever your answer is, I think it's going to reveal a lot to you about who you are. And that's okay. And it's okay if you don't like your answer too, because a healthy self-awareness of what you want to do with your eternity is a very good thing. It's interesting. In describing hell, Pastor Tim Keller says that he believes the flames of hell is a metaphor. He doesn't believe that there are necessarily actual flames, though there might be. He thinks that when the Bible mentions the flames of hell, it's a metaphor for something much, much worse. And that's not a scare tactic. It's actually very based in logic. I mean, he really gets his ideas from C.S. Lewis. And I think C.S. Lewis's ideas are worth talking about on this subject and definitely worth opening this subject on. But in order to really understand where C.S. Lewis is going, we have to also talk about William Blake and his ideas. So William Blake wrote a poem called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell in which 
He basically describes heaven and hell, and forgive me if this is an inaccurate synopsis, but it's going to be a very quick synopsis so we can get to the point. But William Blake describes the marriage of heaven and hell as circular, that essentially all throughout eternity we create the heavens and hells within our souls and within our character and our being, and that kind of sounds okay to a modern thinker. But C.S. Lewis, in a way, refuted that. So if William Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, C.S. Lewis wrote a fictional allegory called The Great Divorce, talking about heaven and hell. And as I was talking about this to a fellow philosophical friend, he mentioned that uh, the summary I was giving of The Great Divorce sounded almost transcendental. And to be honest, I mean, it kind of does. Lewis has almost an Emersonian voice in The Great Divorce. And it isn't typical Lewis. It's also kind of a little bit of a dirge. It's a little bit of a noir kind of book. And so I I really encourage you to read The Great Divorce. It's fantastic. And again, I'm going to do my best to summarize the main points out of it. But forgive me if the summary isn't accurate. But essentially, what Lewis plays on is kind of an ontological idea on being. But rather than an existential ontology, it's a theological ontology. Or at least it's a way that the anthropic ontology relates to a theological reality. Okay, big words. Basically, (laughs) Lewis gets the point across that God allows people to go to heaven or hell as the great choice of who they want to be. So in essence, perhaps a proper way to look at heaven and a proper way to look at hell is to say one of those two directions is the completion of your answer to the question, who are you? Who do you want to be? And I hope upon hearing that you hear the grace in the statement, but perhaps you don't. So let me explain a little further. And we'll tear apart this work and over the next couple episodes as well, Lewis's work of The Great Divorce. But recall the rich man and Lazarus. It's interesting that this is the only parable Jesus tells where a proper name is given to a character within it, and that's Lazarus. And I think it's even more interesting that the other character has no proper name. So Jesus be breaking some traditional storytelling rules here. But anyway, to note about this story is that when the rich man calls out to Abraham and asks him to send Lazarus to send a drink, what's missing is the rich man calling out to Abraham saying, Let me out of here! Oh my gosh, I'm in hell! And also, Abraham's explanation of why Lazarus is in heaven when he says to the rich man on earth, You had it. You had what you wanted. You had everything you wanted. And Lazarus did not. And I think that's very telling of who the rich man wanted to be. And that's why he doesn't have a name. He wanted to be a rich man. And it's very gracious of God then in this parable. And of course, it's all fake, right? The Lazarus and the rich man were made up. It was a story given to get the point across. But the point is in the parable that this man wanted to be a rich man. And so for the rest of recorded time, God will refer to him as a rich man. And Lazarus wanted to be Lazarus the person made in God's image. Because at the end of the day, there is a theological truth that God made us for the purpose of being in relationship with him and that everything else is just a byproduct of it. So let me put this back into real world terms here. Essentially, there are two paths before us, though they bear many different names. And to rebuttal William Blake, eternity is not circular. Actually, the concept C.S. Lewis lays out of eternity is that it's like a tree. And every decision we make, every action we take, is another branch that shoots up out of that tree in 
whatever direction we are shooting into. And at the end, your branch is either going to heaven or going to hell, but the difference between the two, there is a great divide, a great chasm. There, there could not be a greater difference between the two options on the person you end up being or I end up being, and that it's all a choice. So you tracking with me? The rich man said, I want to be a rich man, and he made choices, and he made decisions, and he I don't know, maybe he stuck to a budget and he was a really good businessman and he established himself in the community and whatever. At the end of his life, he was a rich man. And that was the pursuit, the entire pursuit of his whole life. And I don't know if Lazarus had other pursuits. And I don't know if maybe misfortune overtook Lazarus. I really doubt Lazarus was a beggar by choice. Maybe disease overtook him. Because all we really know about Lazarus was that his sole desire was to know God. And in the end, both men got their desires. And The reason I say that, I I don't say that the rich man was actually rich in hell. In reality, he had nothing. And in reality, he was nothing. That's why he didn't have a name. He was a rich man without riches. He was a man, maybe even if that. You see, because the sad irony is that the riches this man wanted came from God. God created everything. God owns everything. At least that's what the Bible says. But it doesn't matter if the desire is greed. Put any desire in there. Put a good desire in there. Is the sum total of what you're chasing after righteousness? Do you want to just be seen as a good person who gives to charity and protects the environment and votes the way a good person should vote and stands up for the rights a good person should stand up for? Who gives you morality? God. So if your end goal is just to be a good person and you try to do it without God, at the very end, when death sets you on a trajectory an infinite trajectory based on the path you've already started and been laying for yourself, you'll find yourself being a good person without God and without God's morality. There will be no goodness left, only self-righteousness, only selfishness. Put lust in there, right? Put covetousness in there. You see, the Bible says that hell is going to be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But earth is sometimes a place like that, right? Keyword, sometimes. Because you know what it's like to weep. You know what it's like, like to gnash your teeth and anger and rage and right? But you don't know what it's like to do that on an infinite level. And so in a sense, Lewis is right. Hell begins within. And I understand that, you know, we throw around that phrase of going through a personal hell or going through a personal heaven when times are either bad or good. But Lewis says hell is a grumbling mood at the beginning. And I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he says it continues on until nothing is left but the grumble. No more man. Hell then is a stripping of identity. In a way, John Paul Sartre was close when he said hell is other people in that he kind of got across this idea that your identity is completely rooted in external factors and not internal factors. And uh, John Paul Sartre, again, French atheist, would have thought it absolutely silly to follow Disney's logic of look within yourself and find your true identity. Because John Paul Sartre would have said, no, your identity is entirely based on other people, which is what he did say, and that a hell is an identity based on the wrong kind of people, right? In his famous work on that, where he put three people in a room, and metaphorically, of course, and wrote down their interactions, and they all made each other worse and miserable for it. But in a way, he's right. We only form identities based on external things. The house you live in, the family you grew up in, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the job you have, the education you have, the music you like, the TV shows you watch, the movies you watch, the things you paint or write or sing about on earth make up your identity. 
None of those have come from within. None of those are contained within. All of those are blessings from God. So when you remove God from the picture eternally, when you remove the blessing from the picture, you're left without an identity. And oh, I can't imagine, but that is hell. Think back to the time in life where you were just so enraged and furiated and you gnashed your teeth. It felt like a flame inside of you, right? I can think back to that. It did. Or the time you wept and grief and sadness overtook you. There's a fire inside, and not in a good way. Not in the motivational, rocky kind of way. In the tragic way. In the destructive way. There are some desires, when carried out within us, void of good, end up being destructive to us. Yeah, we may throw things or we may hurt other people and they may be destructive externally. But in a way, they destroy a piece of who you are. And it's temporary on earth, for the most part. Most of us have been through these things and destroyed pieces of who we are, but we can redeem after. We can apologize, we can make amends, and life can go on as normal. Because as Martin Luther would say, there's a common grace that we all enjoy. But what happens when you reject all grace? What happens when you reject the presence of goodness himself? But we haven't even gotten to the main point of the great divorce from C.S. Lewis, right? You open the chapter and what do we find? We find that there's a bus stop and a bus that runs from hell to heaven. Now, this isn't biblical. Again, this is all metaphorical. But perhaps the objection is, okay, well, maybe here on earth in the 70 or 80 years at most we get, maybe I choose hell accidentally. But Man, once I'm there and I see how bad it is, won't I want heaven? And the answer is probably no, as Lewis describes it anyway. You see, this whole book is about the bus ride from hell to heaven. And the interesting thing is that anyone at any time in this book can hop off the bus and get to heaven, but very few do. And that's because, again, the defining aspect of heaven isn't that you'll be comfortable or that you'll be happy or that... It'll be paradise, and you'll kick back with your feet up on the beach drinking pina coladas, though that sounds awesome. What's more awesome is that heaven will be you and God and a relationship restored. And so, therefore, the point is that someone that doesn't want God, that doesn't want his goodness from him, that doesn't want to worship him and to receive the love of him back and the goodness as a byproduct, but rather just wants the goodness, wants the comfort, wants the complete identity outside of God, it doesn't matter if you place them in hell or heaven. They're going to hate it either way. Put them in heaven. They won't want to be there because it's all about God. And put them anywhere else. They still need God's blessings to enjoy everything. And that's something I feel like it's very important for us to remember. And it's probably a very Martin Lutheran theological truth. But the teaching of the Bible is that we deserve hell, right? That's the teaching of original sin, that we've rejected God. We deserve to be separate from him forever and that everything else is grace. The fact that God lets us live on this earth at all is grace. The fact that you have a family is grace. The fact that you have a job or had a job or will have a job soon. The fact that you have any kind of money. The fact that you have any kind of food. The fact that you have access to Spotify or Podbean or Apple, or whatever you listen to this podcast on, it's all a blessing. It's all grace that we've actually never known a true heaven on this earth, and we've never known a true hell because we've never known a life separate from sin, but we've also never known a life separate from God's grace. We've never known a life where you desire to be rich and have 
nothing and no means to get anything. We never have known a life where you desire to be lustful and have no means to quench that. We've never known a life where you desire to be filled with food and have no means to eat. And that's why Tim Keller says the flames are perhaps a metaphor for something much, much worse. But anyway, hope I didn't bum you out too much. As I said, this subject is perhaps best worth approaching as a dirge, best worth approaching with a sober heart and mind. But next time, I do want to look about what the Bible actually says about hell, what will hell be like, and kind of dispel some common myths, maybe starting with kind of the idea that Satan is the king of hell or that he's the ruler of hell which is not biblical at all. (laughs) The Bible actually says he's the ruler of this earth, of this age. (laughs) And uh, when we think of a devil ruling hell, we're um, believing Greek myths and uh, fables. (laughs) But anyway, enough for this show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.